Welcome to Occupations, the podcast, where we discuss what it's like to hold specific jobs. Occupations is brought to you by LotsOfMaps.com, where you fulfill your vintage map gifting needs. Visit LotsOfMaps.com. Hello and welcome to Occupations, another episode. And uh, my name is Andy Jagelinzer and we're here in Westchester, New York, on the road. Uh, and I'm here with my friend, Anthony Savini, who is a filmmaker and cinematographer. And he's uh, going to tell us what that's all about and tell us some great stories. Anthony, welcome to Occupations. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thanks for uh, letting me into your beautiful home uh, sure. in the woods. Really beautiful here. You are a cinematographer and you're mm -hmm. a filmmaker. I also do other things. So I am producing a film right now. Um, I've directed in the past. Sometimes I've produced as well. I say filmmaker because I have those hats that I can wear as well. But my main thing is cinematography and then camera operating. So where did you grow up? Long Island. Were you an, an artistic type of a kid? Were you into art at a very young age? I always enjoyed photography. And so I was very interested in that. And that was sort of my entrance into it. Like I remember my sister had a um, Polaroid and I remember one year I just went crazy with that Polaroid, which probably cost my sister a lot of money. But, you know, I just remember taking tons of photographs with that. And my father, interestingly enough, looking back at our slides and our photographs had an eye of some sort. Like I, I, I look back at it now and I'm like, oh, he was paying attention to the frame a little bit. Th does that make sense? Yeah. That's kind of where it started. My sister Donna is also, she's a fine artist. Having her around. Is she older of, than you? Yes, I'm okay. the youngest. Yep. Okay. I'm the youngest. My other sisters are also in one way or another, have had sort of a creative career in one way or another. Sure. I think it just maybe was in the water at yeah. our house in Uniondale on Long Island. <laughs> That's totally, uh, yeah. Uh, so how old were you when you discovered the, the Polaroid? I was really young. I mean, I was probably somewhere between five and eight. Wow, okay. Maybe. So really I wouldn't say that I was completely enamored with it, but I, I do remember it being like a highlight. Like this was, I, I got to play with it. And it was only like a couple days you know, but still it was like that year of like, sort of like, oh, wow, this is. But now you can cool. look back at that and say, that is a key moment in my life. And yes. so even though it may not have been a big event at the moment, it certainly is looking back at it. Right. So that's a good thing. <laughs> so this is going to sound funny, but uh, so do you remember Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? Sure. I fell in love with that movie. I think I saw the first time that it was broadcast on mm. TV because I think back at it now, and we lived in Uniondale, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid was on, and apparently my parents wanted to go to sleep. But I was watching the movie, and it was amazing. And I remember specifically, because I loved The Lone Ranger, I loved all that stuff. This was different, because they were the bad guys, but I liked them. Right, right. I remember thinking, I don't actually understand how I like these guys. They're the bad guys. But like, I remember them jumping off the cliff and into true seventies editing style for TV. Like they had to fit a commercial in and they didn't hit the water. 
Right. True cliffhanger. A true cliffhanger. They didn't hit the water. And, you know, spoiler alert, in the movie, they do actually hit the water and there's a bunch more movie. My mom said that was the end of the movie. (laughs) So I went to bed. Wow. That's cruel. That's cruel. And I, I remember thinking that night, like, how could that be the end of the movie? And that happened all the way through college and everything. I, yes, I, I did not actually find out that there was more to that movie until I was in my thirties. Oh, wow. And I would tell people it was my favorite movie. I'd be like, Oh, Bush has a Sundance kid. It's incredible. I, <laughs> I, you know, I literally had arguments with people in, in film school about it being one of the best movies ever made. Mm. Clearly they either didn't see it or thought that I was nuts because, you know, I, didn't see the whole movie and had no idea what it was actually about. <laughs> no, no, did you know it was there was more to the movie? No, I oh, didn't. Oh, so you didn't even know? I didn't know. I learned there was more to the movie because I was working as a camera assistant. I was on location in Nebraska, I think. The director was like, oh, they're showing Bush Cassidy and the Sundance Kid on you know, at the local college and it's going to be outside and a screening. I'm like, oh my God, that's great. It's like my favorite movie. So I went (laughs) and I remember watching it and thinking, this is amazing. It's really short. Like this, like I remember thinking it's better than I thought. They're more complicated. These characters have dimension that I didn't realize as a eight-year-old or maybe just forgot, but it's really short because this just feels like the first act. Right. And I was like, all right, I guess this is the movie. And I swear they jump off the cliff and I hate crowds. Mm. So I, I got my backpack ready. They jump off the cliff. I stood up to walk out, <laughs> to walk away. And then they hit the water. And I was like, oh my God. CGI is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and I sat back down and watched the rest of the movie. And I was like, this is amazing. There's more to this movie. And then I understood. I'm like, my parents lied to me. Oh. <laughs> A lot of people my age say Star Wars or sure, of course. Star Trek yeah. Yeah. or what have you. When I am truly honest with myself, which isn't often, it's Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. In that moment, kind of turned into a quest to understand story. It's clearly something when you're young, you don't realize that there's character development and all of that that goes into these things. But clearly, it's something you've learned over the years. That's great. Yeah. So you finished high school? Finished high school. You were doing some photography in high school? I did. Yeah, I took photography classes in high school. I took some art classes as well. The usual stuff. Yep. Okay. What made you say, I need to pursue this? I was actually more into architecture in high school. Uh, We Mm. had a uh, industrial design class and that industrial design class, we we took it in ninth grade, took it in 10th, took it in 11th. And I was with the same people through those three years. And the teacher literally to his credit, Mr. Davis, uh, he asked the school if he could add one more year and he asked us, you know, after he got permission, he was just like, what if we did another year and you guys designed your own house? Hmm. And I was like, that's amazing. So I, 12th grade, I designed a house. Um, Is it the one we're in right now? It, you know, what's really weird. 
it looks something like this, <laughs> which is really weird. I didn't put it together until just sure now. Sure, Mr. Davis didn't design this house. <laughs> we actually don't know who the architect is, so maybe he did. Or hmm. maybe it was you. He all stole along. it. He stole it. Anyway, so I thought it was going to go into architecture through a bunch of circumstances. I met an architecture student, realized I don't want to do that. And I, because he was going nuts and I met an engineering student and he looked sharp. He had like a nice tie on, his hair was combed, you know what I mean? Like the whole thing. And I was just like, okay, engineering it is. So I went into engineering and was challenged a lot because it's, you know, a lot of math and what have you, but also could not imagine myself doing that. I loved it. And I look back at it now and I think, gee, I probably would have really liked it. Nobody was telling me what it actually meant. They were just saying, here, draw this, here, figure out this problem. But what am I actually working towards? And I didn't understand that. Right, right. And I looked towards other avenues and I was just like, you know what? Photography. That's great. Yeah. So you packed your bags and off to Manhattan. Off to FIT. FIT. Yeah. So why FIT? Now, Fa Fashion Institute of Technology, for those who, you, mm -hmm. who, who don't know that. Um, Where we met. That is not, yes, that's true. Uh, though I wasn't a student. Yeah. You certainly don't think of photography when you think of the Fashion Institute, but clearly yes. they have a, a, a pretty good photography curriculum. Yes, they do. I don't know where they are now uh, because it's been a couple of years. I think I'm, you know. Three years. Three or four. Three or four years. They, at the time, had a really good bunch of teachers uh, who were teaching us lots of different methods and thoughts and, you know, really trying to expand our horizons. In high school, FIT had a, what they called Saturday Live, which I think they still have. Tom Carvalha is his name. He was a photographer. Uh, mostly at that time, he was doing portraiture, um, but he had run the gambit. He had done fashion photography. He had done all sorts of photography. While taking Saturday Live, he was just like, what are you doing after high school? Uh, I don't know. I'm going to be an architect. Like I, mm. I think at that time, I probably still thought I was going to be an architect. Sure. And he was like, why aren't you doing photography? And I was like, I don't know. I think I, I genuinely think I equated photographer equaled broke artist. Yeah. Right. Sure. In my mind. Sure. Like I wasn't thinking of it as something that you could do for a living. Right. So then when architecture engineering sort of went to the wayside, I was just like, well, photography and FIT made sense because I knew Tom already and I knew the campus and I wanted to live in the city. So that's great. Checked all the boxes. So checked that's all great. the boxes. So you finish FIT, uh, two years, correct? Two years. And off to NYU. Off to NYU. All right. So what was attracting you at NYU? Step your game up a little bit more. So I applied to Cooper Union, UCLA, USC, NYU. I was aiming low and Cooper didn't take me. I think UC, one of the U's took me. Mm -hmm. And NYU, when I went to pick up my portfolio, because I didn't have a film. Okay. I had to submit a portfolio, which I was like, Phew, thank God they recognize that there's a little relationship here. When I went to pick it up and the person who I got it from was like, hold on a second, somebody wants to meet you. And this 
woman came out who I, I believe was the dean. I can't remember. She shook my hand and she was just like, we loved your portfolio, but they made an effort to get me there. Yeah. And they wanted me to go there. I wanted to do film because I was getting bored with still photographs by that point. I think I was just looking to do something that was more long form instead of here's a photograph. Okay. What's the next one? I wanted to do something more storytelling. She made a big effort. Like she knew what my portfolio looked like. It didn't seem like lip service. So you went two years at NYU and finished up years. and, um, and what did, what did you take away from NYU? What, what was the, wow. Yeah, I know. And it's a, it's a big question, but at the same time, there must've been something that sort of made, made it click for you. Uh, film. H- had you done any film work before even stepping into NYU? Yes. My friend, Chris Warnock, who is a special effects person, he and I made films, mostly stop motion when we were in grade school and junior high school. Mm. So we made these stop action movies that were amazing. Probably look like crap now, but like, you know, at that time it was film. We had to like literally take each frame and you know, it was, uh, and then we'd have to develop it and then hope that it was okay. Had not made anything film wise from that moment. So it was, you know, all brand new for the most part. And yeah. uh, 10 years later, I was suddenly in film school. Hadn't made a film in that long. Mm. <laughs> I was like, oops. <laughs> but that's okay. Uh, yeah. Obviously, NYU wanted you for your eye. For I, th- I your, hope so. I hope that's what it was. Um, yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> I mean, they yeah. obviously saw potential in, in you and that's, that's great. Yeah. So NYU, did you fulfill that, that promise? Did you, was there something that kicked it up for you and, and, and said, okay, this is all starting to come together nicely. And I sort of see where maybe not long-term, but you sort of, it started to click a little bit for you there. Yes. NYU is, you guide your own path. You decide if you want to focus more on cinematography or focus on editing, blah, blah, blah. Um, I assume you needed to spend a little time everywhere though. Is that yes, correct? Yes, okay. exactly. Like so. I actually took like a, a sound class mm-hmm. and, and a bunch of other stuff. So yes, you had to fulfill certain things and then you could take your extra credits and put them towards whatever you wanted. I paid more attention to writing and story and trying to develop something more than just photography. When I first got there, I I think I realized, like myself, there was a bunch of people who may not have had any experience in doing it before. My photography background gave me a step up in the visual sense in film school, not not since then. <laughs> it leveled out pretty quickly. Um, so like I recognized that pretty fast. Like I was, uh, we had some introductory classes where, you know, I ended up shooting like a few films for friends and everything because they needed somebody who could actually do it. So I started focusing more towards uh, a writing career with something to say, trying to figure out what a voice would be like for myself. 
And then also trying to expand with uh, experimental film making because I've always struggled with wanting to make art, but also understanding that you need to make a living. Right. right. I have these two sort of colliding thought processes. I love experimental film, but it was also like, how do you make a living? But it was the time of music videos. Mm, right. So right. like our, our experimental teacher was telling us, he was like, he's like, look at this film. And he would show us a film from somebody who had been through the class three years before. He's like, he's now directing music videos. Mm. Right. So like uh, it, it was helping me to, try and bridge that gap between those two worlds. How do you build a career? Got it. Right. Like how do you leave NYU and not just have a huge bill? Right. Uh, and you know, end up working in something that you will never pay that bill. Right. Right. So like, I was just like, I need to figure out a way to do this. So that was my end goal, I guess, was just like your, your parents believe in you. They want you to, and they want you to do well and your friends want you to do well, obviously. I think it was, I wouldn't call it a pressure, but an, an understanding that like, I want to do good for them. Okay. So now you're kicked out of school. You're done. <laughs> that must be scary. First of all, it was scary, but also not. And I found an internship right around the corner, which was great because I didn't want to go any further than right around the corner, <laughs> but it was with this little Japanese company called Little Magic. They're gone at this point. And Little Magic was making a TV series for Japanese television. And it was with photographers who were going to be doing video. Hmm. So they saw me, photo person, who's now in film. And they were like, you're coming for this ride. So that was my last semester was whenever I wasn't at school, I was working there. The transition was pretty swift and seamless for me. I wasn't making a ton of money there, but the experience to this day is highlighted in my mind. I like, I met photographers who I had looked up to. I don't think they understood how much it meant for me to be like in the room with them or like sitting at 7a uh at like 11 o'clock at night talking about photography hmm. you know i don't think they understood that i knew as much about them as i did because i was trying to be cool do you know what i mean sure. like you know i mean want to fit in and not want, stick out right exactly sure. and be like a goober who's like oh my god i love your stuff <laughs> you know so i i was like trying not to do that sure. so i didn't it was a, an amazing time. I met and worked with Bruce Davidson, uh, Susan Mizalis, Gilles Perez, Elliot Erwitt. It was amazing. At the same time, I still had my photography connections. I was also working um, with this guy named Jose Bacayo a little bit. And then with Tom Carvalho, that other photographer, I was working with him. Mm -hmm. He was doing really, really cool. Like we photographed Vincent Price the one day and mm. I'll never forget. Like, I was just like, oh my God, this is wow. Vincent Price sitting in this studio. It was wow. awesome. But then like Jose Bacayo was the it flavor of like, he just stormed fashion photography and 
uh, you know, I, I worked on a Bloomingdale's catalog with him and some other stuff. And then his assistants, I was working with them. And then I did for a hot second work with Annie Leibowitz. So I was working my film, my photography background, but I was also, so I, I kind of had both ships going at the same time. Perfect. Yeah. So it was a lot to juggle. I'm sure a lot to juggle. Yeah. I missed a lot of opportunities, but I also had a lot of opportunities. Right, you right. know, it was an interesting moment. I've always talked about internships being a vital, vital part of getting your foot in the door. Whether you're learning something or learning how not to do something, you're learning if you're paying mm -hmm. attention. Yeah. Um, even if you're just getting coffee and doing yeah. nothing, internships are such a life lesson and uh, yeah. it sounds like you were doing a lot more than just getting coffee which is good yeah but you were rubbing elbows with in some cases your heroes yeah um, but also learning i'm sure a, an incredible amount as you were going oh it was or, or were you teaching them how to do their yeah <laughs> funny um no what what we did was i did a simple language version of the footnotes of how to work the camera so that they didn't have to read the whole thing because this was it was yeah. pretty early on in small this was 92 mm. so like small video cameras that you could broadcast with were not not there yet not on yeah. your phone you know like these phones didn't exist nothing like i mean cell phones didn't exist but like the landlines idea, Landlines were <laughs> landlines exactly. We all had beepers, um, so we weren't rotary dial uh, video cameras on your phone. <laughs> <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> they knew the camera, but they didn't. Right. You know, it wasn't second nature to them sure. like their still cameras would be. Right. So I I wrote up that sort of thing, and then I would be their assistant while we went out and shot. Um, and I learned so much, like Bruce Davidson yelled at me the one day, like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> and I learned really quickly. It's like, okay, when I say I'm ready, I should be ready. <laughs> like I shouldn't, I shouldn't be almost ready. I should be ready. <laughs> and I was like, copy that. <laughs> don't, don't ever pretend that, you know, it's like, wow. Um, but as a, as a side note, I, I thought he hated me, you know, because it's like, I'm this young whippersnapper. He invited me up to his place after the shoot was over. We were done. We edited and everything. And he was like, he was like, uh, come up to the apartment. And I was like, all right. So I went up to the Upper West Side and he had one of those, one of those apartments that were several apartments, but they connected them. Do sure. you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Broke some walls down and yeah. connected them all. Yeah. He was always gruff. He was always sort of, which is why I think I couldn't read uh and he like opened the door and he's like oh, yeah, come in and he just walked away and so i walked after him and then we kind of walk through the maze of like you know this apartment was put to this apartment and then you know right and then we get to a kitchen and he walks through and there's an old gentleman who i i look at him and i'm like i know that guy but i don't know who he is right and he's sitting there cross-legged with a cup of tea and he like looks up at me like oh there's somebody else in the space and then bruce comes back in and he goes oh uh anthony Ilya kazan Ilya kazan anthony oh, and i'm like 
hi. And then I just walked by and then we left a different way. So I never saw Ilya again, but there he was. Right? And then Bruce, he, he handed me a, a photograph that he had signed oh. uh, as like a thank you. And I was like, wow, I thought this man hated me. That's, that's very great that he didn't. Wow. <laughs> so was it thank you for letting me yell at you? Yeah, thank oh, you okay. for letting me yell All at right. you. <laughs> he probably did feel bad. He did really let yeah. me have it. It was, it was, uh, I mean, obviously it's years ago, it's decades ago and I still remember right. it. So, <laughs> so are you now yelling at your young whippersnappers? All the time. Okay. All the time. Lessons yeah. learned. Yep. Very exactly. good. Exactly. Yell Important. at people. Excellent. <laughs> They'll remember you. <laughs> <laughs> and I assume you're still hanging out with Ilya Kazan. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. All the time. Oh, sure. Lotsofmaps.com. Vintage, local, national, and world maps for an affordable price. 99% of our maps are $25 or less. Great as gifts. Frame them or put them under glass for your home, vacation home, or as a memory of a special place. Lotsofmaps.com. Okay, so you finished NYU. Uh, you were working at Little Magic. What happened there? What, did that project end or what, what happened to, uh, yeah. or did you find something different to propel you to something new and exciting? I think it was a little bit of both. Okay. Um, little Magic was mostly distribution. Okay. So they would take shows from the United States and distribute them in Japan. So for example, Twin Peaks. I was a huge Twin Peaks fan they distributed Twin Peaks in Japan, or at least facilitated the distribution. The show that we made, I think, you know, it was a one-off. Right, right. Right? So they were sort of winding down. And then Insignia Films, the producer wrote to uh, the producers over at Little Magic saying, hey, do you have any interns that you like or PAs that might come over? And Insignia is Stephen Ives, still making great films and American experience films mm. to this day. Wow. It was Michael Cantor and Stephen Ives were, were kind of the two people there. And uh, Ken Burns was the executive producer of a project that they were making called The West. Uh, and I started there as an, as an intern. I, they, I just went in, they interviewed me and they're like, all right. Sounds great. Can you come and be our intern? Wow. And I was like, sure. A few months later, I was on the road for two months with them out in the middle of nowhere shooting the American West. Wow. Not shooting, but being the intern. Right. Not even the PA yet, but just right. the intern. <laughs> so what kind of responsibilities did you have on the road with them? I like to say that that job ruined me for the rest of my life. Uh, it was... So much fun. So they had a Suburban. And I would fly into Denver. I'd pick up the, the truck. And then I would drive to uh, South Dakota, Rapid City, to pick up the crew. Because the, tr the last time that the truck was used, it was in Denver. Right, Somebody dropped right. it there. But now we needed it. So I would go out early. I would pick it up. And then I would drive to uh, Rapid City. I'd pick up the crew. We would shoot for five to six days, whatever it was. And then Michael Cantor would say, he would just be like, we would talk on the phone and he would say, ah, you know, I don't care where you go. I don't care what you do. Uh, you know, just be in Sioux city 
on the 10th, which would be like five, five, six days later. Wow. You know, the one time he literally said, you could come back to New York if you wanted to just be in Sioux City. And wow. <laughs> right? I wasn't getting paid, but they would pay for everything. Mm-hmm. So I would, you know, drive around. Wow. I would just like I, the one time I was in. Oh, God, I just realized that they might listen to this. Um, <laughs> oh, man. Uh, too so late. Anyway, so no, too, too late, exactly. No, it's not. Uh, no, it's, uh, I, they probably know all this. That ruined me. Well, one, working with Stephen, working with Buddy Squires, who within the documentary world, Buddy Squires is up there with Ken, right? Like the two of them. Uh, to work with them, uh, Michael Cantor was always amazing. It was like a second film school, hmm. right? Does that yeah, make sense? Absolutely. Um, and then on top of it, I would have these mini vacations where I would drive around the country. It spoiled me to drive into the mountains, to drive Rocky Ridge, to get there for sunrise. Like we would wake up at three, three forty-five in the morning was regular so that we would be standing on location to get sunrise someplace i found a bullet at the battle of little bighorn we're standing on this berm and we're overlooking the graves and i i looked down and i was like what what the hell is that thing and i and i picked it up and i and i looked at it and i showed it to the ranger and i was just like is this a bullet and he looked took it and he was like yes that's a bullet and you know now with the park owns it you know like i was a 20 something year old kid. And these were these little experiences that I genuinely never thought I was going to have. And so it was, it was amazing. And it was like a second film school, like I was saying, being with those people. Right. So I I know that in the film industry, you're not working on one show until the end. And then you're off for a while and then you find another show. You're constantly doing work on different things I want to say what's next, but I know that there was a lot of things happening um, at the same time. So what kind of projects were you doing at the time? And maybe sort of just briefly run through uh, a few of the things that you were working on at that point after the West. After the West. So um, after the West, I ended up uh, working with Buddy Squires a lot. So wherever he was going, I was going. We worked with uh, Rick Burns doing his documentaries like, uh, New York, which, uh, was, and I, I, to this day, I consider one of the most amazing documentaries baseball, the extra innings with Ken Burns. I didn't work on the original one, a bunch of stuff with them in parallel with that. I never wanted to let go of narrative film or television. So while I was working with them, I was also working on features as like first a PA, then I was second AD'd on a film. Um, I did a bunch of other stuff on different films and TV shows. And then I, I ended up in accounting at one point. Wow. All while I'm, you know, still working in documentaries as a camera assistant. And then I worked in accounting for this show. I forgot the name of it. And they had a relationship with Law and Order. 
and law and order needed an, a, an accounting assistant. And I was like, law and order. I mean, like now I don't know what law and order means, but at that time, law and order was like, they owned New York. And so I was just like, yeah, okay, I, I'll do that. So I went and I worked with Kadi Johnston, who is production manager to this day. Kadi would do the estimates and the budgets for the episodes. And I was like there with her helping her and stuff. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Uh, and I, I got to ask you, how much, how much did the ching cost? <laughs> the, the, was there a, it's not cha-ching which is kind of funny i don't know uh mm, i'm every, sure he gets something for every episode though <laughs> i'm sure he does um but the but once i got into into the union because i was at the same time doing like camera assisting for, you know, whenever I could on TV shows or, you know, like non-union stuff and documentaries, I got enough days. Um, I got into the camera union and as soon as I got into the camera union, Kadi and the other people there in accounting, they're like, Oh, let us introduce you to the camera department. Shortly after I became their at the time, you were still allowed to do it, but I was their, their camera trainee, which I don't think they do anymore. Got it. Got it. They're not a school after all. Right? Yes, exactly. Okay. I understand Exactly. That. Yeah. But I'm sure you learned a lot. Um, that was like going to film school yet again. Yeah. Um, I learned so much there. The lighting moving fast, but not undermining what you do while moving fast. Form and function of stuff meaning like i don't think law and order could look any other way than the way that it did because of the way that they did it it was like film school again i i i used to say and i still do i probably learned as much in the first three months there as i did two years at nyu wow it was amazing was there a budget reason why they couldn't afford tripods for the cameraman <laughs> It was totally budget. <laughs> I just noticed they did a lot of hand-holding of cameras, and I just yeah. thought, well, why can't yeah. they just get those guys tripods? Yeah. It's so annoying. <laughs> so you learned certainly a lot about camera. Oh, my God. About uh, shooting uh, and filming and, and such, and lighting and all that. Yeah. So, uh, so where did that take you to uh, as far as within Law & Order itself? Law & Order. So I, I had to make a decision. This is where I think my career made a turn that I can't say I regret, but I made a decision to go in a direction that made certain choices that I didn't understand at the time. So I became a first assist. I was a second assistant at Law & Order and other places. Uh, I was getting a bunch of work, all union work. I am a fan of the union. And I recognized that I hated being a first assistant, hated it. All the horror and none of the glory. Um, if you got it wrong, everybody knew. And if you got it wrong more than once, everybody knew that you were gone. Wow. Um, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm making it sound worse than it was, but 
it was film. It was 35 millimeter. It was Panavision. Panavision, uh, you know, cameras, you have to really finesse them and make them work right. And I was not that guy. Mm. Uh, and I, I knew I couldn't do that. So I had to make a decision. So it was like either lean more into just staying as a camera assistant or try and jump over and come back as a camera operator, jump over being a first assistant, which doesn't work <laughs> just as a side note. <laughs> it does, but it's, it's not the same. So I leaned into my documentary world. At that point, I still stayed. I kept my fingers in the camera assisting world. But when you end up shooting documentaries and you are the cinematographer and no matter what, I do love a story. You are more connected as the cinematographer in a documentary than you are as a camera assistant. Maybe sometimes even just sitting on the truck, right? Like you're, you're just doing whatever it is. I think I just gravitated closer to wanting to be closer to the story itself. So I ended up moving in that direction more to stay away from being a first assistant. First assistants who can do it are worth their weight in gold as far as I'm concerned. It's wow. amazing. I can't do it. Hmm. can't do it. Interesting. You were doing a whole bunch of things. A whole bunch point. of things. What, what was your, your true focus and what was your, your biggest project you were working on? Was it personal? Was it your, your work? Or was it, because uh, I know you've done a lot of things of your, on your own. Yeah. Uh, or were you still working for other people? And It was mostly other people's stuff. Um, Buddy Squires, Ken Burns, Rick Burns, Alan Moore, who's another cinematographer, they kept me very busy. So uh, it was not hard to just sort of lean into that and be there. And then there was another company that did like after school specials. So I worked with them a lot. I shot a feature, did some of my own photography again, believe it or not, but mm. not much. I, I don't want to say I strayed away from wanting to do my own stuff, but I was busy enough and fulfilled enough that I didn't, I was always writing. I was always trying to get something made, but it wasn't on the front burner. Got it. The front burner was, I am moving towards operating cinematography and directing and producing is hopefully another thing. And meanwhile, you're doing all kinds of other things too. Lighting and uh, you're oh, yeah. dipping yourself into all kinds of things. I know you were uh, doing some TV other, other than Law & Order. You were doing other TV uh, things as well. Yeah. So Buddy, again, Buddy Squires, ended up working with this other guy, Bill Guttentag, on a TV series, another Law & Order TV series out in San Diego. And they brought me on as sort of like the long-term in-house cinematographer. I was not getting paid as much as the other guys, but I was there full time. So if, you know, the other guys would come in and out, but I was there five days a week. I was there, I think six or seven months a year Wow. living in San Diego. That really gave me the opportunity to build my confidence in being a, a good storyteller with a camera, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So that show, it was called Crime and Punishment. From Crime and Punishment, I moved back to New York City and Steve Kazmierski, who's another really like great influence on my life, uh, is a cinematographer. 
he was working on a little TV show for the BBC and he was just like, you want to help me out on it? And I was like, sure. So we started working on, it was called What Not to Wear. And he moved on to do other stuff. And I ended up shooting What Not to Wear for a while, which was really bizarre. I was just like, what is this weird place of, of it's reality, but it's not, it's, what is this thing? And I didn't understand, like, uh, like, I know that sounds weird because I was coming from documentary. I didn't really pay attention to that world. So I didn't really know it, but I was like, oh, okay, yeah. You know, I could see how my skills fit there. So I just... A lot of the same characters from FIT. <laughs> a lot of... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. That became quite the show. It was quite the show. I was there for a few years. And again, still doing other stuff. I made a short film. I did some art photography for a while. I had some gallery shows. I was still working for Ken, still working for Rick. I think the way that I survived was that in New York, you really have to constantly have your feelers out and not just rely on one thing. Otherwise, you can end up in trouble. So you, at one point in this conversation, you talked about NYU being a, a place where you were trying to figure out how to make a career out yes. of this. Yeah. You were being paid at this point. So you were, you had yeah. made a career out of this. Yeah. This is a uh, mission accomplished. Uh, yes. Yeah. This is easily 10 years after NYU. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So I remember you came up to Boston for a what not to wear episode. Actually, we, uh, you were filming in Cambridge and, oh, uh, right. and I popped in and, and said hello oh and, um, and that was great. But I also know you spent another little bit of time, not long after that, working on a, was it a reality show? I think it was a short, was short-lived reality, reality yeah. show. And it was about guys who moved pianos or something. Yes. Uh, Death Wish Movers, I think is the name of the show and the company. Right, right, right. Yeah. Right. And they moved uh, pianos. Uh, yeah, that was, oh my God. Yeah. I, so yeah, that's basically what happened was I started making these shows that were, you know, short term, it would be maybe two months. I think I was there two months, maybe at the most. Sure. And, uh, you know, it was uh, Death Wish Movers was actually a lot of fun. That was a fun show to shoot. And then another show that I shot was uh, a show, which is, a, it was so much fun was Sand Hogs, which was down in the tunnels under New York City building new tunnels under New York city wow. uh, for, for anyone who's in New York right now, it was like the, um, it just opened now and we shot 10 years ago. It was the, um, East side access into grand central. That's what we were filming. Wow. Right. Like it's so long ago and, and, but it just opened. I started shooting these docu reality shows mm -hmm. one after another each one had its own challenges, right? Nothing was not challenging me in one way or another. Death Wish Movers was, you know, just watching a bunch of guys move pianos, but like fearing for their lives every time they did it. Like they did the craziest things to get pianos out of houses. <laughs> Sandhogs, it was a mental game as well because we were shooting during the winter. I would go into a tunnel before the sun got up and it would be setting by the time we came out. So, you know, the only time I saw the sun was during the weekends, uh, on top of being in 
situations where people potentially, thankfully not often, but potentially could die. I also shot a pilot on surgery hmm. where we filmed surgeries. Wow. And it was amazing. It was crazy. I shot a heart transplant, a kidney oh. transplant, all of these things. Then at the same time, I was also operating on like feature films and stuff like that. So I operated on a couple films, one called Live, another one called Little Boxes. And then I ended up making a film with some friends about Dungeons and Dragons. And that sort of started the next sort of phase of my life in a way. Sure. I remember, I remember you working on that and uh, i believe you had some issues it was a tough that. one <laughs> so so you were making this film with your friends yes. now that is a tough situation right working with your friends working with your family is always touchy hard um i know you had some issues with this situation yeah so like i you know knew these guys for a long time i was talking to a lawyer about film industry and films and television and ideas they said 80 percent of ideas fail as they start because nobody talked about the business nobody talked about how it was actually going to happen and who was responsible for what and that lesson which i thought i had learned i had not i have now since most certainly learned that lesson, but it was a big learning moment to understand that things change, times change them, actions change them. It was a tough, tough time. Lotsofmaps.com, vintage, local, national, and world maps for an affordable price. 99% of our maps are $25 or less. Great as gifts. Frame them or put them under glass for your home, vacation home, or as a memory of a special place. Lotsofmaps.com Dungeons and Dragons absorbed a lot of my life for many years. And I think that's why like, I just can't not talk about it. I was really looking to keep my career going while making the film. Or at least trying to keep the film alive. And I had a lot of bills. Uh, I was paying lawyers. I was, you know, right. So I was friends of mine from what not to wear had moved over to AOL and AOL at the time was still something, but they still were making content, making a ton of stuff. And they were so willing to try anything that it was unbelievably creative. Hmm. They gave us money to try things and to make things and to hopefully make good things that people would watch. So I ended up doing a lot with them, making a lot of stuff with other web providers that were looking to make, um, they call them pans and hands. Do you know the, it's, uh, it's essentially those overhead videos where they, you know, somebody's cooking something or, right. and then you have like, ooh, and then you have the other shots that are coming in from other directions, did a ton of pans and hands. Mm. So as Dungeons and Dragons was happening, I was shooting other reality shows. Oh, I started working on Project Runway as a camera operator. I did a few 
few years of that. I worked on Chopped as a camera operator. Um, I was really just looking for ways to move my career forward incrementally while still holding on to this Dungeons and Dragons film. I had worked years ago on a TV show called The Naked Brothers Band, which was like a Nickelodeon show. Uh, stayed in touch with the the producer who I love, Ken Keller, and his wife, Karen. And they had a small film. So uh, it's called Cat in the Moon. Uh, we shot that in 2018, I think, somewhere around there. It was amazing. It was a great experience. Really, really wonderful people. Oh, and to this day, I am part of the murder industrial complex of of making shows for discovery on you know different murder shows uh you know so like uh evil lives here um or shattered or um a bunch of other shows uh the killer inside i shoot their recreations and i shoot their interviews so that was happening in parallel as well my career is always few things in parallel so i don't think of murder when I think of you, yeah, but maybe but I should. You should. Okay. <laughs> clearly, clearly I should. Well, that's great. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was all happening and that was all pre-pandemic. Speaking of pandemic, New York was affected like no other place in the world, I would assume. What happened in your world during the pandemic? It was a little rough. At first, everything, you know, obviously shut down uh, completely. Then things started coming back slowly. I ended up working with my sister. She works for PBS. So I was filming spots for her. And that was great because, you know, worked a little bit every month and it was more than some people. So yeah, I, sure. I felt thankful. Sure. That makes you sense. Know? And you were working with your sister. And I was working with my sister. Which I got great. to see my sister during the pandemic. So that, that was good. So that probably brings us to modern day. And uh, even though it's now been a couple of years since the pandemic and uh, things are back in swing, uh, I would assume not as robust as it was prior to pandemic. Initially, post-pandemic, things were insane. Yeah, I didn't stop working hmm. for like a year. Wow. Uh, it was yeah. just crazy. Hmm. And that kept going for a, a while. But now I'm, I'm, I'm sure, as you know, there's there are a couple strikes uh, that thankfully didn't bother me too much at first but now it's sort of caught up there's you know everything's slowed down a little bit i would say by the time this airs things will be picking up again but right now it's it's a little slow okay what have i been working on uh a lot of murder shows i've spent a lot of time in prisons over the last i would say year dungeons and dragons they're sending it to all the different festivals, looking for a festival spot. And then, believe it or not, I'm working on the Drew Barrymore show, not in the studio, but out in the field, um, which is amazing. A lot of fun, uh, great people. One of the questions I usually ask on this show is, what is your day-to-day? -day? Now, I am not going to ask you that <laughs> <laughs> because... <laughs> the, the laundry list of things that you just told me that you have done, I cannot imagine that you, there is any, there is no day that's like day any other day. Right. Which is, yeah. which is amazing. Now in my job, 
and I do a, a little work in video. Um, I'm not necessarily yeah. a film guy, but I, I learn a lot. I experience a lot interviewing people, trying to find out what they are doing to make mm -hmm. their product or service sing or, uh, and I'm learning things constantly about sure. different industries yeah. and meeting different people and stuff. And I'm fascinated by it. And that's sort of what spurred on this whole podcast idea was if I'm interested, somebody else has got to be interested in sure. too and in, in yeah. what people do. You have had the most unbelievable career of, of doing so many different things in an industry, but not only that, but working on so many different projects for yeah. so many different people and demographics sure constantly changing and such the education that you've gotten let's say you didn't even film one thing but just the fact that you were in the position to be experiencing what you've experienced has been immense i recognize that it was an extreme amount of luck being in the right place at the right time that i was given opportunities that I, I will never forget. Is there a project that sticks out in your mind? Something that you're proud of? Uh, something that, I, I mean, obviously your entire career is impressive, but is there anything that really sticks out? Yeah. Uh, so I was cinematographer. I didn't shoot all of it, but he shot the majority of this film. Uh, Central Park Five for Sarah Burns and Ken Burns. One, just working with Sarah, David, her husband, and Ken, you know, I, I don't really need to say much more than that. Uh, David and I would go and do, I did a bunch of the B-roll for that film. And not only was it a um, great experience, it was also something to be proud of. I was, I'm proud of all the documentaries I did, but it was a nice sort of uh, literally starting on a Stephen Ives and Ken Burns film as the intern and then being the cinematographer almost exactly 20 years later on one of their other films. It, not the cinematographer, but a cinematographer on one of their films. It was pretty amazing, but also an extremely important thing to talk about. Uh, you know, in many ways, uh, you know, the Central Park Five was, uh, it shaped the 1980s, right? It was 1980s. Uh, and to reflect back at it and understand it more was, was amazing. Um, loved that project. The film industry in itself can be a really cruel place. Mm. It's a tough, tough business. And New York itself is tough and competitive, mm -hmm. ultra competitive. I know there's a factor in there that you have over probably anybody else in this industry is not only are you capable, you're one of the nicest guys I've ever met. And I am now. <laughs> uh, and I mean that. I generally mean that. And I, I imagine that you're easy to get along with. You're intelligent. You're thoughtful you're kind and considerate. That's got to be a, a big plus in, in your book. And I'm not trying to make your head, no. you know, <laughs> huge. No, well, but I, cause, because I always think about the places that I've failed, right? Like where the situation gets the best of me and I do yell or sure. I do, right? You know, so like I carry those with me, those moments where like uh, I could have been a, the better person there. 
and everybody has a breaking point and, yes, and, and exactly. clearly, but, yeah. but a lot of people wear it on their shirt constantly. And I can't imagine that's who you are. So yes, that it's actually, so I taught for a little bit among all the other things that I did. Cause you had um, a lot of time. On yeah. Your I hands. had a lot of time on yeah. my hands. I lost money every day I taught, <laughs> but it was a wonderful thing. Like mm. the, the, I'm still in touch with some of the students and everything. Cause Great. they were anyway, the thing that I say is, having the abilities is not even half of the battle to get a job or a position in this industry. If you're working on a narrative TV show, you are working 12 hours a day with people close to them. And when I say close, I mean close, like physically close. You want people you like. Yeah somebody that you get along with and that when you're not working for those few minutes here and there that you're not working, you don't feel awkward and like, like, Oh, so, uh, how's the weather? You know, you want to be able to genuinely talk to them. I always felt like being a, a good person as much as I could was a better thing to do. And to your point, if you're the guy who always complains, People don't want to work with that. I recently was in that situation where I was where I was told one of the reasons that they hire me is because of who I am. Look, if I had cut some throats more in my life, maybe I would be further. Maybe I'd be someplace else. I, I know that I've I've watched my throat get cut, right, by people, and they are extremely successful. Copy, that's how you do that. But it's also like, I want to be able to go home and feel good about myself. I would think it's a bigger badge of honor to be well-liked and know that you are a good person. Right. Better than being successful. As far as I'm concerned, it's a hundred times more important to be a good person. I'd rather be happy with myself. Right. Uh, That's how I feel. So I'm assuming that's why you get chosen for the murder parts. Yeah. Because you really need to take some rage out on some people. It's basically what you're saying. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Circling back to the business itself. This is a tough business. Can be a very tough business. Very, very. I'm going to assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you're being a great guy. And again, this does not take away from your talent because clearly you've got talent. But that has got to have made it a little easier in the end, having a reputation as a really good person. At the end of the day, for most people, it's about finding that family that you like to hang out with. The film industry is clearly just looking at your history. There's a lot of parts and pieces. There is no standard. I'm sure there are some situations in the film industry where you've got a job and you've got this job for 20 years and yes. you never leave. Yeah, there's, there are those. But not in the position that you're in. Um, and maybe that's, you know, Partly you're doing self-designed. Sure. Yes. But a lot of it is make it up as you go. Art in itself is hard for one person to describe what makes it sing for that particular person. So if you're presenting something to somebody, they may look at it in a totally different way. How do you navigate that? Understanding right. there is a common language, I'm sure to some degree, but you may like something that I don't. Right. And how do you come to a conclusion that makes everybody happy enough. Yeah. That's hard. I mean, I, it's a big soup of, of yeah. 
egos and yeah ideas and everyone has a different vision in their head yeah you were telling me off off microphone that even pitching to somebody a script yeah you don't necessarily get a good explanation of why somebody does or does not like things yeah so what should we do differently who knows right so it's kind of like the wild west out there and you got to sort of make up your own conclusion to a lot of these things because it's not always spelled out to you how do you navigate that uh i'm developing a show with a friend um a few shows that we came up with some ideas and uh we pitched them and what i've learned is that it's sort of like what i was saying about like with uh with an onset crew it's you have to find your people and it's going to be knocking on doors and saying, hey, do you like this idea? Great, will you sign on? So unfortunately it becomes, who's your connections? Who do you know? That becomes problematic, you know, if you don't have the right connection for it. Like I have a, a feature film that I have the director picked out. I just don't have a connection to him. <laughs> I would love to sell that script, <laughs> but I need the connection to that guy you're constantly sort of putting the dots together and saying like, oh, wait a minute, X knows Y and Y knows Z and can I get to Z? On the other side, you're helping as much as you can as well. I guess it's sort of like to help other people and hope that at some point it comes back to you. So for, and this is a crazy question because there is no right way to do this or wrong way to well there's plenty probably plenty of wrong ways to do this uh, for somebody who wants to get involved with film who has very little experience what do they need to do now uh, you've mentioned a few things in this this interview you talked about internships being a very important thing and making uh, a network for yourself and meeting people and getting your foot in the door and that kind of thing obviously your ability to be able to do the work obviously has to be top notch. Yeah. What else? What else would you suggest uh, uh, to folks that you're going to need to know, you're going to need to learn that may not even have anything technical to do with the job itself, but what else would you have to say? I think the main thing is understanding what you actually want to do. There, there was a shirt that a lot of people were wearing in the film industry for a while. And it was like, you know, it had the title of the person on one side and then the, you know, like sort of like the end credits where it's like, you know, um, Mark Hamill, dot, 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 right. Luke Skywalker, right. right? It was everybody's title. So it was like production assistant, dot, 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 wants to be a director, right? And it was, and everybody wanted to be a director, right? Even except for the, the director wanted to be a producer, <laughs> right? But everybody else wanted to be a director. And it was wow. very funny. When I was on Law & Order, I remember us complaining about the job and we were in the cab of the truck with the Teamster. He said something that sticks with me to this day. I don't remember what we were saying exactly, but we were complaining. Law & Order, sometimes we would hit like 16 hours in a day, mm. right? Like we would work 80 some odd hours in a wow. week sometimes, you know? Mm. And he just said, the difference between me and you guys is that you guys want to make film. I want to drive a truck. And like, if you want to drive a truck, drive a truck. And I was like, yeah, he's right. That's awesome. I have friends who are first assistants who are incredible. Like they are so good at their job 
and partly because they want to do it. Mm. I think a lot of people come into this and they're like, we're going to, I'm going to direct, I'm going to be a DP or something. And you might not actually want to do that. Like I, I genuinely thought I was going to direct and be a DP and I am mostly DP camera operating though, is as my friend says, the best job on set. And he's right. Like it's an incredibly good job. It's so much fun. It's hard. You're working your brain and your body all day, but it's a really, really, really fun job. And I never realized that when I wanted to be a writer, director, DP, you know, like I was just like, yeah, I'm going to be, you know, doing all that stuff. And I look back at it now and I'm like, oh yeah, that that's the job that I would do. So like it's recognizing coming in, if you're a PA coming into set, watch and learn and understand what everybody does and say, oh, that's in my wheelhouse. I love doing that. Oh, I really don't like people. I really don't want to be around them, but I do love electricity. Maybe I'm an electric. Maybe I turn into a gaffer. Maybe I don't. Maybe I just like being an electric or maybe I don't even like being on set. Maybe I work ripping sets down. There's so many places to fit. And you've held so many different jobs in yeah. this industry. At some point you're learning what you like and what you don't like. Yeah. So, but, but I imagine you've got to be willing to try anything. Yes. I know I don't like accounting because I tried it. <laughs> so in that advice to other folks, would you suggest uh, with today's prices on software and video cameras and things along the lines of that now where the price point is really low, would you suggest to somebody just go make some stuff, just go and have some fun and write something silly and stupid and make it with your friends? Uh, is that still a good thing to do? A hundred percent. I made stop motion films with my friend. It took a week to get the footage back and we didn't even have the right thing to watch it. Like we literally couldn't even watch it. You know, like that's, that's how hard it was. I cannot stress it enough how unbelievably easy it is. And the sooner you learn that it doesn't matter how something is made, it's how it's told. That's the most important thing. Bennett Sims was a writing teacher that I had at NYU. And it was, you know, the height of film being king, you know, and he came in the one day and he sat there and he like rubbed his beard. And he said, um, I was thinking about it. Uh, and I'm doing his finger cause this is how he talked. Uh, I was thinking about it. Um, and I realized that, um, video is a better way to film things than film. And he did that to piss us off and to yell at it. Like it literally the place blew up and he just kept saying things like, well, it's all these perfect, beautiful little lines. It gets out of the way of telling a story. And I suddenly realized he's telling us, get out of the way of telling your story. Nobody cares. If you have the best looking show in the world and it sucks, it sucks. It's as simple as that. So 
start filming now and see how you don't know how to tell a story and how you do know how to tell a story. And once you start understanding how you do know how to tell a story, hopefully other people will notice as well. And then eventually you'll be telling me what to do. (laughs) One common denominator in all of my occupations podcasts is the word passion. Mm. Everyone Mm. that I've chosen to this point has a passion for what they do. Yeah. I can see it in your eyes and I've known you for years and, and, and I know you love what you do. Yeah. Not everything, I'm sure. Absolutely. But there is a passion inside of you. What is the passion, that the fire that burns in you and makes you happy to do what you do? I know people who work is work. Or for that matter, work just allows them to have the life that they want. If you have a certain thing that you want and, and you're okay with going to work 40 hours a week to do something else, to just have this life, that's a great way to live in this country. I... Usually one at one point in the day when I'm working, will look at the screen or look around me and say to myself, that's a cool shot. Or, uh, as my uh, friend and I gaffer that I used to work with a ton at the end of each day, or each shoot, I should say, one of us would look at the other and just say, we fooled them again uh, into believing, you know, like basically into believing that we actually know what we're doing. (laughs) Um, It's that I'm fearful is not in any other career that I am capable of doing, right? Like uh, with the skill sets that I have. And so like the, the passion is driven by that being able to make what I call like the chocolate of a, of an image, like, cause I love chocolate and I love the spots that if I could eat the image, those are the spots that I would eat first. That sounds really weird, but that's the way that I put it. And you're giving away your secrets. So <laughs> the secret ingredient in all your films is chocolate. Yes, exactly. <laughs> mm. Before you call it a career, is there something that you want to do in this business that you haven't done yet? Yes. I've directed a short and a a pilot, uh, a couple other little things. I would love, I would love to direct. Um, But also, uh, but actually more so, I think, write something. That's really because I do enjoy telling a story. You know, even visually telling a story is important I think that's honestly why uh, I end up in documentaries because I'm, I'm looking to tell a story visually, not just capture images, writing something. Have you been doing any of that? Uh, mostly I've been developing ideas at this point. I used to write a lot more actually before the pandemic, I was okay. writing nonstop. Got it. Uh, you would think that during the pandemic, I would have, gone further but for some reason during the pandemic it i just stopped the actual like script writing and went more into like developing an idea and that's sort of where i'm where i am now got it are you still having fun doing this yes and no i'm i'm getting to an age where 
the travel is a little more problematic. I, I literally wasn't home for it between January and June of this year. I was probably on the road for more than half of that time. Wow. Uh, it's, it, that gets hard. The, you know, the insecurity of it, you know, never exactly know when people are going to decide that you shouldn't be shooting whatever it is anymore. Those things keep me awake a little bit, but otherwise, like I said, like I, I was just filming some recree the other day and I was looking at it and I'm like, that's really good looking. Like we're giving these people something really fun to look at. That's really great. I think if I genuinely stopped, completely stopped loving what I'm doing, I, I would probably stop. Anthony Savini, a filmmaker, cinematographer. Thank you so much for being here on Occupation. Thank you for asking me. My pleasure. Uh, join us again for another episode of Occupations coming soon. Occupations has been brought to you by lotsofmaps.com. Please follow Occupations, the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to find information about our next episode or to see what past episodes are available.